Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Wow, I just can't believe this is our last episode of 2023. Whether this is your first How Leaders Lead episode you've listened to or your 52nd of the year, I just want to say thank you for investing your time with us. Our goal on this podcast, as I just mentioned, is to help you become a better leader. I get a lot of joy out of the fact that you get to pick up some big insights from these leaders that you might not have otherwise had the opportunity to learn from. But here's the truth. You're only going to be a better leader if you take these conversations and do something with it. So my challenge for you on this episode, and it's the same challenge I give you on every episode, is to commit to making one change based on something you hear. And there's a lot packed in here because this is our best of Q4 episode. And like I do in every best of episode, I've got my partner here with me today, the one and only Kula Callahan. Kula, how are you doing? I'm doing better now that I got that epic welcome from you. <laughs> I can't believe this is the last episode of 2023. It is just wild how the year flies by. And if this is your first best of episode, here's how it works. You'll hear a one to two minute insight from each of the leaders that we've had on the podcast this past quarter. David and I will introduce each one of the clips and then you'll have something practical that you can take away and apply to your leadership once you get through the whole episode. So David, I think we just roll into some of these clips from these amazing conversations that we've had this quarter. What do you say? Let's go. And let me tell you something. I love people that know how to think big and more importantly, get their people to think big. And Mark King, the CEO of Taco Bell, understands this as well as anybody. And before Taco Bell, he did some big things as CEO of TaylorMade and also when he was the head of Adidas North America. This clip is from episode 146. I believe that we have to try to do something extraordinary. And that changes depending on where your company is, where your brand is. But I, I just really believe in chasing something that's really out of reach. And I would just say we need a big aspiration. And my aspiration here wasn't fixing the world. It was 10% same-store sales growth. Because I believe that if you have this big aspiration and your thinking is here, meaning you don't know how to get there, you fill that gap with creative ideas. And so for me, it's unlocking the potential of people to find new creative solutions to be disruptive by driving with a big aspiration and filling that gap with creative ideas. You know, speaking of disruption, with most golf brands, their driver club head historically has been black or gray in color. But then you launched a white driver at TaylorMade, which made a huge splash in the market Walk me through the decision-making process for that product launch. I think in my career, it was the most defining moment. And I'll tell you why. In 2010, we were about $1.2 billion. We had 35% market share in the metalwood category. Callaway was pretty much uh, in neutral at $800 million. We were by far the leader in the golf equipment industry, by far. And in 2010, every driver was painted black by every 
competitor, every brand, because to be kind of part of the golf uniform, your driver had to be black. Well, we had a guy that was running our putter business. His name is Bill Price, came and showed us a putter that he painted white, called it the ghost putter, said, hey, we should think about painting our Metalwoods white. Nobody wanted to do it, David. It was highly controversial. All we could do was fail. And we just looked at each other and said, if we don't do this, somebody else might do it. It might not be white, but it might be something else. So we should be the ones that disrupt our own industry. So we painted our drivers white. We showed it to our customers. They loved it. We showed it to some tour players. They loved it. In January of 2011, we launched the R11 driver, which was white. And by March, David, our market share had gone to 52%. So the world is waiting for the next disruption. And you don't have to let it be some outside entity to your industry. You can disrupt within your own industry. And I learned that with that white driver because we were rocking. We were not like broken. It's one thing to do it when your brand is broken. Our It was like Taco Bell. It was rocking uh, by 2010. We disrupted it. And then we went from 1.2 billion to 1.8 billion in one year. Mike White is the former chairman and CEO of DirecTV, and what you're about to hear in this clip is how you pull together the right kind of strategy, especially in a new leadership position. He also shares some super practical wisdom for how to show up in a negotiation, and you're definitely going to want to take note of this. So here's the clip from Mike White from episode 158. DirecTV had been very well run. My predecessor, Chase Carey, had done a superb job with the business and had gone back to Fox. Like anything, when you go in new, I, and I was coming cross industry, which is never easy. So I came in wanting, you know, wanting to learn a lot from the existing organization, but they had never really done a formal strategy process. So in that case, I hired McKinsey. It wasn't because it was McKinsey. It was a woman, Laura Korb, who was a real expert in telcos, telecom, media, that whole space, which I wasn't. And we had a good working relationship. So I had McKinsey in. But again, it starts with defining the right questions. You know, and the first question on my mind was, how come we're trading at six times EBITDA when Pepsi Bottling Group traded at seven and a half and our return on capital was 26% and Pepsi Bottling Group's was about eight. So you had to kind of decide what is it in the valuation that's not working and can you change it? And then second, looking at where is this business changing? And so it's, it's hard to believe, but when I went to DirecTV, you know, Netflix was still sending stuff out in red envelopes. <laughs> but, but you could see the world was beginning to change and that you couldn't just have a service that was the television in the living room. You had to be able to watch it on an iPad or an iPhone or whatever, although most of the video streaming really didn't take off till 2013, 14. And I got there in 2010. But... Defining the right questions, I think, is the first and foremost thing. And then looking at your competition and trying to understand your strengths and weaknesses and what your biggest opportunities and threats are. You know, we both worked for Craig Weatherup when, you know, he was at Pepsi. And uh, he always described you as he said, you're one of the best negotiators he'd ever, ever been around. You know, do, do you have any rules uh, for negotiation or I mean, what's, your, what's your concept when you go into a negotiation? I appreciate Craig's compliment, but I'm not sure I had ever felt that way when I was at DirecTV negotiating with Kraft and Goodell and the NFL or anybody else. It, it, you know, 
I did have a, a couple of, of things, though. One I learned from Enrico, which is if you're doing an acquisition or buying anything, and I would say the same applied to our negotiations on content, know your walk away. You might not tell anybody, but you better know what your walk away is, first and foremost, when you go into it to avoid the emotion of the deal taking over. So know where you're going to draw the line and say, okay, I'm out, uh, number one. The second thing I did, and again, I learned this from a coach, Marty Selman, is I put my watch on my right wrist instead of my left. I'm left-handed. It's, it's on my left wrist, but I'd put it on my right wrist. Just slows you down in a discussion to breathe and listen to what's being said. And, and the third thing I learned was make sure you get the right question. I mean, at DirecTV at one point, my, my guys were negotiating with Oprah, the Oprah network, and uh, they weren't happy with how negotiations were going. And I remember they came into my office and I, I said to them, you guys are asking the wrong question. And they looked at me like, what? I said, look, the question isn't, are we going to drop the Oprah network? Because I'm going to answer it for you right now. The answer is no, we're not. Okay, <laughs> period, full stop. So therefore, the question is, how do I get the best price relative to Comcast or anybody else? So I may not like the price, but I want it to be competitive and fair. And so I think making sure your team is asking, because it's easy to get into the emotion of the moment, are they asking the right question and thinking holistically about what you're trying to get to? Well, cool. of all the things I've experienced in my career, I've never had to go toe-to-toe with the President of the United States like this next guest did. In episode 160, I sat down with Dr. Mark Esper, the former Secretary of Defense, and it's been widely publicized that he didn't always see eye-to-eye with President Trump. So I asked him, what is the best way to navigate disagreeing with your boss? And believe me, this can happen a lot of times. Let's take a listen. You're right, David. I don't think I ever had a boss that I'd agreed 100% with. And uh, and don't tell my wife, but I don't agree with her 100% of the time either, right? <laughs> so having an expectation that somehow you're going to always agree with your boss is, is just, uh, it's absurd. Uh, so you got to find out whether your differences, though, are, are, are really cut across your core principles and things like that. And, you know, that's where you kind of got to draw the line. Otherwise, I, I think you're responsible for doing everything you can to help uh, your boss, if you will, implement his agenda. Uh, my rule was always, you know, it has to be moral, ethical, and legal. And my view was always, uh, I never jump on the first idea. I always felt an obligation to kind of go back and come up with not just with the option that the the principal wanted, the boss wanted, or the president wanted, but to come back and uh, tease out the idea, think about what he's trying to achieve, and maybe offer up maybe some better ideas to get to that same position. And so um, there are a good number of things that I agree with the president on, uh, whether it was securing the Southwest border. Uh, I agreed with uh, his drive to get the allies to pay more for, for their own defense and for allied defense. Um, I agreed with the, you know, what he did on the Abraham Accords, uh, certainly agreed with the, his willingness to support the troops and, and grow the defense budget. So there were a lot of things we agreed on, but there were some things I didn't agree on. And my view was always, let me come back and give you some different options. And I talk about this in my memoir. It's a responsibility of the subordinate, I think, to, to help the principal think through the issues and, and kind of present ideas, options, if you were, that are realistic, that are achievable, that are measurable, that, that are supportable, things like that, and kind of rearrange that box for, for him or her, and then let them decide based on that. And I'd done that on any number of occasions, whether it was issues like 
how do you control drugs coming north or options against our enemies? Uh, how, well, let me tee up some other options for you, Mr. President, to see what makes sense. And that way I can kind of draw from the depth and experience of my military commanders. So I think, you know, again, whether you're in a job like I was in or whether you're, you know, working at uh, at 7-Eleven for your boss, uh, who's the manager on duty that night, you, you owe you owe your honest opinion and you, I think you have a responsibility to go back and find options, not just saying no to the one that's on the spot. David, this next guest, I would best describe as a joy bomb. Her name is Mignon Francois, and she's the founder and CEO of the Cupcake Collection in Nashville, Tennessee. Mignon started her business with a $5 bill, and now she has sold over 5 million cupcakes. Her story is inspirational, to say the least. And this is true in any entrepreneur's story. Growing a business is not easy, and there's always something to learn. I love the way Mignon shows up, and you'll hear more about how she's continued to grow herself as her business has grown as well. This is from episode 165. I, again, have listened to those that are smarter than me or, you know, as I enter into rooms. I believe that you are the sum total of the five people that you hang around with. And so I've always been hanging around people who I admire. And those people would say, hey, you you should think about joining this program or, hey, would you come to this dinner? I want to introduce you to this person. And I always made myself available to those things. But it was one major move that I believe really propelled me. And that was when my neighbor came from across the street, she had bought the house of the woman who propelled me into the business into the first place. But before that woman left the neighborhood, she made sure to introduce me to the new person taking over her house and said, she's going to take care of you just like I did. And one of the things she said was, we have this program at the Entrepreneur Center. She was part of the entrepreneur organization and it was called Catalyst. You had to be making a certain amount of money in your business for them to take you on. But I applied. I didn't even realize how much money I had been making at that point because I was just, you know how they say you can't see the picture because you're the frame. And I didn't even realize that we were we were we were not only surviving, we were beginning to thrive. And so I applied to be in the program and it was there that I began to raise my hand in the room and say, hey, can you pause? I don't know what that means. I don't know why. Why should I care about a profit and loss statement or why do I need to know what the bottom line is and what is this bottom line and how deep does this bottom line go? <laughs> and it was things like that that they would laugh and say, Oh, Mignon, let me teach you. And then it was just, it became an endearing thing that they wanted me to learn. And so I began to understand what those things were. And as I understood, I began to teach others because my mother taught me that if you want to solidify what you really know, then teach someone else. What impressed me the most about Mignon is also what impressed me about Bill George, the former CEO of Medtronic. They both are very clear on what drives them, their purpose, and they know who they are through and through. What you're about to hear is how Bill hammers home the importance of defining what your true north is as a leader. This is a clip from episode 155. You know, I think a lot of us think, oh, I want to be successful. I want to have a great family. I want to do this. I want to do that. But you really have to think through what gifts can you give to the world that are unique? What are the gifts you bring the world? You know, I'm not a technical genius. I didn't want to be, you know, an academic or, you know, what are the gifts? 
And you decide then, well, how is that purpose? How can you bring that? And you're right. If we want to be, I decided my gifts were going to be in leadership, but then I had to decide where do I want to lead? You know, I can't just lead anywhere. I, <laughs> I tell you, if I went to politics, I would lose very badly <laughs> because I wouldn't be a good politician. I'm just too straightforward and too honest and say what I think. But I had to find, you know, the right match. Like you said, it took me a long time to find. I love my job at Lytton Microwave, but I can tell you the corporate headquarters, there were a lot of values and ethics questions for me. That's one of the reasons I had to leave. Honeywell was a very ethical company, but it was a big bureaucracy, and I kept trying to change the bureaucracy. And at Medtronic, it was small enough that I could help mold it with the kind of people we needed, a dedicated group of leaders that shared a common purpose and vision and set of values. And so that was like the right place for me. Uh, but I think you have to really go back and process what's really important to you in life and figure that out to find your true north. And it really is the core essence of who you are. And see, when you're successful, you start to think you're better than you are. And when it all gets stripped away, as it did with me with those two deaths, I realized what's really important to me in life. And I said it's really relationships with people and helping other people learn how to lead and reach their full potential. So if I had a purpose today, I would say I do have a purpose. And my purpose, you know, I'm not I'm not the guy designing the, the defibrillators or Medtronic or the stents. But I would like to think my purpose is to help people reach their full potential. And I've carried that over into the two decades I've been at Harvard Business School now. This next guest has a background unlike anyone we've ever interviewed on the show. It was your episode with Joe Moglia. He's the former CEO of TD Ameritrade, and he's also the former head football coach of Coastal Carolina University. I love a story he shared in that episode about one of his key leadership philosophies, which is there are no excuses. This is from episode 164. With me, the leadership philosophy Take responsibility for yourself. There are no excuses. None. It's too easy to make excuses. My coach doesn't like me. My teacher doesn't like me. I got a problem with my girlfriend. My parents don't understand me. You know, the Fed is too aggressive. Uh, you know, my legal department is, is, is too much on me. Compliance doesn't get it. One excuse after another, after another, after another. Well, my leadership philosophy, there are no excuses. So we're getting ready. We're like 11 and 1 or something, and we're ranked 7th in the country. We're playing Montana's ranked 4th in the country. But we're playing at Montana, and that's going to be the coldest day in the history of college sports. So the entire time we're playing in minus 26-degree weather. So we're getting ready. Now, we're having a great season. We're making some noise here. And I just sensed a different attitude in the room kind of getting ready, and I stopped the meeting at about half an hour. I said, guys, what's going on? And one of our coaches said, Coach, you know what? I mean, we're playing Montana. Now, we know we can play with Montana, but not minus 26 degrees. He said, we just fit, we just played last week, and we practiced in 72-degree weather. We got 15 guys on the team that don't own coats. We got 15 guys on the team that never physically seen snow. So I said, okay, so the problem's the weather. I said, let's stop. I said, recognize what we're doing is making a mis make, using an excuse. So we're going to lose the game, and we're going to blame it on the weather. So therefore, it's okay subconsciously, whenever you make an excuse, you let yourself off the hook. We're not doing that. So if that's the issue, then now how do we fix this? Let's address the weather. So we started to contact people that, that we had some relationship with or knew somebody that knew somebody that had, had experience doing research like in the Arctic. And like, how are we going to handle this? 
all right, that we spent every, we spent 30 minute meeting every day about how we're going to handle the, the cold. And we practiced that way, even though it was only 75 degrees at our place, we made believe it was like, like minus 25. We went there a day early. When we were getting off the plane. I remember turning around to the guy and said, I'm preparing you for this. Once you get off the plane, you're going to get a shock of cold like you've never felt in your life before. So bottom line, game day comes and we're dressed all over the place. I may have a picture here somewhere that I can show you. Like just, you can only see this in my face because I'm so covered up. We have special savon, et cetera. But what we did, we had one bench. The players come off the field. First thing you do is take your helmet off. They didn't take the helmet off. They kept the helmet on till they get to the bench. They sit on the bench. Then they take it off, put it between their feet. On each side, we have these little little tor- torpedo heaters, which are like little jet engines. They're shooting heat under, underneath. We have radiant heaters above our head. So, so we act like we're going to be on the field for an hour, but we're only going to be on three or four or five minutes at a time. So by the time we go back on the field, our feet are warm, our shoes are warm, our hands are warm, our head is warm, and we're going back on the field. Okay. Coaches can be very charismatic, can be very smart. I made a living coaching football for 25 years. Uh, a tremendous respect for the profession. But we, we can all be blockheads. So part of that blockhead mentality is, hey, don't worry about the cold. It's not that cold. It's not really raining. It's not that hot. You know, it's my own <laughs> matter. You're tougher than that. And here we got these little punks coming in from coastal Carolina that live at the beach. They're the beach boys, and they're playing us. We're the mountain men. We're the grizzlies. We're the cowboys. Okay, they're coming out turf. They're not going to have a chance here. Well, I did my homework on this, and I saw that in December in Montana, it averages 22 degrees. They never had minus 26 degrees. So that's where the attitude is. When you see people come out in the field in real cold, like short sleeves, because they're tougher than you are, all right, we're warming up. They come out in the field wearing short sleeves. They go, you know, we got a shot here. We got a shot here. <laughs> and and uh, we're doing real well. At the end of three minutes, we're down 14 nothing. <laughs> oh, boy. But we score the next 35 points unanswered. At halftime, it's 35-14. We win the game, and the biggest reason why we won the game wasn't because we did an incredible job of executing our field. We did a pretty good job of that, but because we were prepared for the biggest obstacle we had, which was the cold. There are no excuses. Doesn't matter what the environment might be like or what profession you're in or whether it's your family. No, there are no excuses. You gotta figure out how to get it done. Well, speaking of coaches, Kula, our next clip is from Michael Bungay Stanier. He is the author of the bestseller, The Coaching Habit, and the founder of Box of Crayons, which equips leaders to become better coaches. Michael says that we all have what he calls is an advice monster, which means that when given the chance, we're prone to just give people advice rather than really coach them to the right answer. In this clip, He gives a simple tactic for how we can tame that advice monster and learn to be better coaches as leaders. This is from episode 156. Well, you know, the story of the coaching habit book is I was like, there's something to be written here to try and unweird coaching because people who are into coaching are really into it already. But there's a great bunch of people, normal people, managers, leaders, individual contributors who've heard about coaching and are a bit suspicious about it because, you know, they've met some life coaches or whatever, and they're like, I don't want to be like that. And various iterations of this book, I'm like, here are my favorite 180 questions because <laughs> I've been collecting questions for 30 years. I'm like, there's so many good questions. But in the Coaching Habit book, I boil it down to seven questions, which I say, if you come close to mastering those seven questions, that gets you a long way down the road. But if I had to pick one, I would say the question is simply, and what else? A-W-E. So it's literally the awesome question, because that's the acronym, and what else? 
Because the insight on that question, David, is their first answer is never their only answer and it's rarely their best answer. So what it does and what else is a multiplier because whatever question you ask, you know, if you say, you know, if you ran Pizza Hut, what would you do? Great question. And they'll have, a, they'll have an answer for you. But if they, you then go, and what else would you do? And what else would you do? And is there anything else that you do? This is great. And what else could you do if you were running Pizza Hut? Now you're actually tapping into a vein of curiosity and you're not just falling for the first answer that gets spoken because that's where most of us stop. And the higher up you go, when you ask people what they do if, if they were you, the more reluctant they are to really give you the answer because they're afraid of giving the wrong one. And, and a lot of times there's silence. Right. So what do you do when there's silence there? <laughs> you know, silence, if you can get comfortable with silence, it is one of the most powerful leadership tools that I know. Because as uncomfortable as you are in that moment where you ask a question and there's this beat <laughs> of silence and, you know, you it's like, oh, my goodness, it's been one and a half seconds since I asked the question and they haven't said anything and you can feel the tension. But if you can take a breath and hold the space, they will crack before you do. And when they crack, something magical happens. They'll come with the answers. And, of course, for some people, David, silence is necessary. You know, Susan Cain made popular this whole idea of the quiet ones, the introverts versus the extroverts. If you're like me, when somebody like you asks me a question, Dave, I'm like, I will start talking and I don't even know what I'm going to say yet. <laughs> I'll go, David, <laughs> great question. I've got three things I want to tell you about that. And I'm not sure what they are, but I'm about to find out. I'm quite excited. Yeah. But if you're wired like Susan Cain or other introverts, they need a heartbeat or three to figure out what they want to say before they start saying it. So when you ask a question and there's silence, the most powerful thing to do is sit in it and wait a moment and not feel the anxiety to fill the silence because it could be a great gift to that other person to say, I'm giving you time to figure this out. I'm giving you time to think. I'm celebrating that I've asked a question that's making you think so that you're going to come up with an interesting answer. This is a fun one, David, because our next clip is from Jim Levine, who is your literary agent. He also represents Tom Brady, Ray Dalio, Patrick Lencioni, and so many of the authors I'm sure you've read books from. As the founder and principal of his literary agency, LGR, Jim has been very intentional about the culture they've created. You'll hear a bit about that in this next clip where Jim talks about the importance of vulnerability as a leader and the impact that can have on your entire organization. So let's take a listen to this clip from your conversation with Jim in episode 162. In our team meetings that we have every two weeks, one of the things we do is focus on uh, what we call situations, which are kind of problems or challenges. So we've got everybody coming to the table, including me, saying, I just can't sell this book. Or I, I don't know why, but I, I've been doing this for a long time. So younger people are hearing all the time. They're seeing that they're not alone in meeting with disappointment. I think that's the most important thing. We built a culture where people feel comfortable sharing their vulnerability, their disappointment, and understand that they're not alone. 
So I think if you can show people that this is just part of the job and it's part of life and you got a, a support team behind you, that's what keeps people going is knowing they got a team with them. You know, it's like basketball or any sport, you know. One day you win, the next day you lose, the next day you win. But if you know your team's there fighting hard for you, that makes it possible to, you know, we got people working for us for a long, long time. And I think it's part of the, the team culture that keeps them there. This next guest was really a fun conversation. One of the most fun I've had in the past several months, and it was with Yamini Rangan, the CEO of HubSpot. I was so impressed with Yamini, and I especially loved the part of the conversation where she talked about how they look at their culture the way they do any other product at HubSpot. The whole episode was great. And here's a little excerpt from episode 161. Our first product is, of course, you know, the product that we create, and that is for our customers. And the product's mission is helping millions grow. The second product that we have is our culture, and that is for our employees. And that mission there is to help HubSpotters grow. So we, we think about, you know, two products. Let me tell you how we take it even further. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, as much as we are evolving our primary product, can we evolve our culture? And how do we make sure that we are evolving the culture? We have something called the culture code, which is online. You can go and look for HubSpot's culture code. It has been downloaded something like 6 million times, and it has evolved. It's now, I think, version 100 plus, because we are constantly updating how we think about the culture. And the concepts make a ton of sense. What do you do in terms of your product? You say, what are the best features of your product? And you figure out like, what are the features that customers uh, love the most? Same thing with the culture. What are the features of your culture that your employees love the most? And keep doing that. Then you ask yourself, what are the most requested features of your product? And go build those things in. And it's the same thing with employees and culture. You just ask what are the most requested features of the culture? And if you pay attention to it, it becomes really obvious how you need to evolve the culture. In the last couple of years, the most requested feature, David, has been flexibility. And that's why we leaned into hybrid. You know, our employees can go into work, they can stay at home, or they can go into the office like a couple of days a week. And we found that flexibility is one of the most requested features in the world that we live in. And that's now evolved into part of the culture. And we want to be not just a great company that people want to work at. We want to be a great hybrid company that people want to work at. That's how we think about evolving culture like a product. Paul Sarvati is the CEO of Insperity, an HR solutions company he started 37 years ago and has grown it into a multi-billion dollar business. Like Yamini, Paul has been very intentional about the culture they've created at Insperity. What you're about to hear is how they view their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts simply as a starting point. This clip from episode 159 explains how they've taken all of that to another level. What I believe is the right approach is to have a values-based, culture-driven, people-centric approach. And I call that commonality, equality, and cohesion. 
And I really talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion as, as being a good starting point. It's obviously important to want to have a diverse group of people. It's obviously important to be inclusive. But that can't be the goal because just having the right people around the table doesn't accomplish anything yet. Don't you want people to do something? Don't you want them to work together better? They have to have commonality to see what they have in common and connect better. You know, do you want just inclusion? No, I'll give you an example. You know, I come from a family of nine children. I was seventh out of nine. I was the fifth boy in the family and I was in the younger side. We used to have little uh, baseball games in the backyard. And I say backyard, it's not a baseball field. You know, there were trees in center field. So <laughs> I'm talking about like a farmland, okay? And we'd have a little baseball game out there. And of course, what you do, first thing you do is pick teams, right? Well, since I was kind of the runt child, uh, guess who was always last to get picked? Well, that was me. <laughs> and sometimes if it wasn't even, they'd say, well, you don't get to play because, you know, it's not, you know, it was odd number of people there. Well, I'd go crying back into mom, right? And she'd come back and she'd say, all right, guys, you guys have to include Paul. And then she'd go on and they'd say, okay, Paul, get out to right field and you don't get to bat. So I was included, but I was far from feeling appreciated. So inclusion is not a high enough goal to reach the objectives you want in your company. That's why if you think about cohesion, cohesion comes from the uh, word cohere, which is means stick together. That's perfect. You want your people to stick together. You want uh, cohesion in your organization. So this is about setting these goals differently and then reinforcing those in a manner that produces a, a greater sense of belonging that achieves four business outcomes. This is really important because what I'm saying to you today is that if you do this right, not only do you really accomplish the unifying goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you also improve the likelihood of success in your business because you'll get greater individual discretionary effort, better team collaboration, better innovation in your business, and a better ability to have alignment in your organization. Now, if you're a business leader and you don't want those four things, you don't know what you need to be focusing on to take your business to the next level. Those are four important things, and this strategy accomplishes both. Well, this next guest also founded a company that she grew into a billion-dollar business, and it's a conversation I had with Liz Elting, the founder and former CEO of TransPerfect, a language translation solutions company. How did she scale this business to what it became? Well, you're about to find out. Here's a clip from episode 157. I think it's so important as an entrepreneur to, even though in the beginning, all I focused on and all we focused on was selling, selling, selling. 300 phone calls a day, 300 letters a day, and not letting ourselves up for air unless we did that. And I, I, we were the only salespeople, my partner and I. And so that was critical. But the question is, how do you get to the next level? I think the key thing is to not be the company's only salesperson or even most important important salesperson. I mean, I guess ultimately the founder and CEO could potentially always be the most important, but by that, I mean, as far as how they spend their time, you know, I think it was so important that 
we quickly built a top-tier, world-class sales organization. And so every bit of profit that came in really went toward hiring these people and training them, developing them, and retaining them so that they were our connection with the clients over time. And I think that was so critical because, you know, ultimately we did have the largest sales team in the industry, but that was by design. Um, over 600 full-time salespeople. And it was necessary because had we not really focused on that, we couldn't have built the company. It was all about hiring the salespeople so we could work on the business rather than in the business. What's one area of leadership, Liz, that you, you, you felt especially challenged in as you were scaling the business? In the early days, as I mentioned, we were working so hard to sell, sell, sell so that we could get the money to hire people and grow. So we would do that. And then we had enough work where we needed to hire people to get the work done. And we needed people so badly that we would bring people in. And sometimes we made mistakes on what we looked for in a person we hired. That was one thing. But the other big thing was we, in the early days, asked too much of our employees. We had so much work because we had worked so hard to get that work and our employees had worked so hard to get that work, but then they were working crazy hours. They were pulling all nighter after all nighter and we needed to have them do that to get the work done. We couldn't bring in the people fast enough, but that's no good. You know, we thought, okay, we'll just give them a bonus. We'll just give them a raise. But over time, of course, that doesn't work. (laughs) They need their life. They will be miserable. They will burn out. And we lost a lot of people in the early days because we expected too much and we couldn't just take care of it with paying a bonus. So that was a big mistake we learned. And through that, we learned things like, okay, we need to set it up so we have different shifts. And after that, we added shifts within a time zone. For example, in New York, where our headquarters is, we also made it so in our other offices around the world, they were covering our second shifts and our third shifts. So when the the workday was done in New York, then it could, you know, go to another time zone, you know, in Hawaii or wherever and so on. And then, you know, Tokyo and so on. So we found ways around it, but initially we had a lot of turnover. Well, David, this last clip is from our final interview of the year, and it was with Brett Baer, chief political anchor of Fox News Channel and executive editor of Special Report with Brett Baer. You know that we try and pull out super actionable insights from these leaders in the episodes, and what you're about to hear is exactly that. Brett gives some advice on how to empower your people to disagree with you. Let's take a couple minutes to listen to this clip from episode 166. You have to have close folks around you who are not afraid, and you have to empower them uh, to be able to be not, not afraid to say, boss, this is not what we should do, and here's why. You know, writing these presidential series, Eisenhower was the best at being able to have people that disagreed, and they would disagree in front of him, and then he would make a decision. And when Kennedy came in to take over, uh, he said to Kennedy, listen, you want this discussion. This is the National Security Council. You want this debate. And Kennedy said, no, I have my brother. It's fine. It's just me and my brother. Well, what happened was, you know, the, the Cuban Bay of Pigs happens, and the, the entire first part of the Kennedy administration is consumed by this. And after that happens, the first person he calls is Dwight Eisenhower. 
And there's this picture of them walking up the path at Camp David. And Kennedy turns to Eisenhower and says, boy, you know, this is a lot tougher than I thought it was. And Eisenhower turns to Kennedy and says, with all due respect, Mr. President, that's what I told you six months ago. And so that ability to have people argue in front of you and not be afraid to confront you, you have to be able to empower them to do that uh, so that they can. David, I love these best of episodes. It's so fun getting to relive some of these moments with you. What an incredible quarter of conversations. And for those of you listening, if there's someone you know who would enjoy this episode or a team member who needs to hear one of these clips, take a minute and share it with them. Shoot them a quick text with a link to the episode and tell them why you wanted them to hear what you're sharing with them. As you know, at How Leaders Lead, our mission is to make the world a better place by developing better leaders. And if you carve out a little time with us each and every week, we'll help you build the confidence you need to lead well. Well, I can't wait to get back again with you, Kula, in 2024. We have some amazing conversations to share with everybody. And I got a favor to ask. If you haven't already, would you take one minute and leave a rating and review of the show? We read every single comment and want to know what you appreciate the most so we can do even more of that in episodes to come. So again, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave a rating and a review. And that does it for this episode. I hope you have a happy new year and we'll see you soon. And you are going to have a lineup of guests in 2024 that will just keep this engine rolling.